Welcome again. Glad you're here today. I'm excited about just what God's going to speak to us today. Uh, we've been in the book of Romans now for probably about six months or so, and it's been a really great uh, spiritual uh, growth time for me. I've, I've certainly read the book of Romans many times before, and I've read it through many times since we started this process six months ago. It's, it's just really a great, great book, and, and this is actually one of my favorite parts we're going to talk about today. You know, we've been going through some parts that aren't really that fun to hear, uh, talking about our sinfulness and how depraved we are and how far from God we are in and of ourselves, but today it's going to kind of turn and, and go a pretty good direction. So what we're going to talk about today is focusing our minds, focus your mind and live a spiritual life. Now we might think, well, what does focusing our mind have to do with having a spiritual life? Paul's going to share that with us today. You know, he's just talked in the last couple of chapters about uh, these contrasts. He said, hey, you know, uh, we had death in Adam, but we're alive in Christ. He said that uh, born into Adam's family as human beings and part of the human race, we had this sinful nature, and we were um, uh, dead in our family of Adam. But then we could, uh, by faith, move into the life of Christ and into the family of God. And uh, he said that we're dead to our sin and we're alive to God. He said, said before we became Christians, we were slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. And of course, that, that word <clears throat> slaves means uh, to basically uh, be an obedient member like a child in a household. Um, he said we're dead to the law and we're alive to Christ. Then he talked uh, in the, in the uh, chapter last week about how the struggle was real. Remember that? He said, man, the struggle is real to live this way. We believe all this stuff. We believe that our old life is gone and our new life has come. We believe that the old sinful life is dead and we have a new life in Christ. But then he talked about the struggle and he said, man, I just, I just don't seem to be able to master it all the time. He said at the end of last, the last chapter, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And really what he was saying is, if all of this is true, and it is, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Why can't I ever seem to just master it all? Why can't I just stop sinning? If I'm dead to my sin and I'm alive to God, why can't I just live a perfect life? He asked the question, who can possibly deliver me from this body of death? And then he went on to answer it. He said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He tells us who can help us. He tells us who it is that can help us live a righteous life. Now he's going to tell us how to do it, which I'm very excited about because I'm a how guy. You know, I'm not only a what guy, I'm a how. How do I do something? And so he's going to talk to us about how to do that. We're going to read in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. We're going to read through that, and then uh, we will come back and uh, pick it apart a little bit. Uh, i got to tell you, if I stumble over the words a little bit, I memorized this passage first in King James, then I memorized this passage in the New American Standard, and now I'm reading it in the English Standard Version. So if my words get a little confused, it's not because I'm having a mini stroke or I can't read. It's because I've memorized it in two different versions, and it's not this version, and I may slip into that. So try to stay with me. And let's read this together. Here's what it says. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if... By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Man, what a sweet, sweet part of this whole letter he writes to these churches in Rome. He starts with this one declarative statement, there is no condemnation in Christ. Let's go back and read those first four verses and and hear uh, just the answer, folks, to all of those things that he was saying last week in chapter 7. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He says, in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. Now, he's using some court words here. Is there still sin? Yes. Is there fault? Yes. Are there accusations? Yes. Are there indictments? Yes. But is there a judgment of guilty? The answer is no, folks. No. No, there is no guilty judgment. For those who are believers in the gospel, there is no longer a guilty judgment on our lives. Do we still sin? Yes. Hopefully not like before, which we'll see in a minute. But, but can people still accuse us of things? Yes. Can Satan still say, see, you don't really love God. You do stuff wrong all the time. Yes. But at the end of the day, when the jury of one looks at us, does he say guilty? No, he says not guilty because he doesn't just see the truth of our sinfulness. He sees the mercy and grace that we receive through the blood of Jesus covering our sins. See, the law was imperfect, Paul says. 
Remember, it points out our sin. It makes our sin known. We can look at the law and say, here's what it says don't do, and we do it. But it was unable to negate our sin. It was unable to blot out our sin. It was unable to teach us to live a perfect life. Jesus came in the flesh, but he overcame it by living a perfect life. While he was fleshly in his existence, he was spiritual in his behavior. And when he rose from the dead, he had both overcome both sin and death. Now, folks, that is something to get excited about. Our two biggest uh, uh, fears, our two biggest enemies in the world, sin that eats our lunch in this life, and death that can separate us from God in the future life, Jesus has overcome them both. Jesus has overcome the flesh by coming here and living a perfect life. And then he overcame death in that after he was killed, after he gave his life for us, three days later he rose from the dead and he overcame death. Wow. We win. We win, folks. Yeah, I know this life has got some difficulties. Yeah, I know there are hard things that happen. Yeah, I know we sometimes feel like Paul does and says, oh, wretched man that I am, I wish I could just get over my sinfulness. But in the end, we win because of God's mercy and God's grace. If we accept Christ as our Savior. If we have come to the point where we realize we are sinners, we can't do anything about our sin, we can't stop sinning, we can't uh, do enough good to overcome our sin, there is no giant scale in the universe somewhere, but we see what Jesus did on the cross. We see that he died, lived that perfect life, and then gave it up in payment for our sin. And by putting our faith and trust in what he did on the cross to pay for our sin, believing that he both was, uh, died, uh, buried, and resurrected, that we can, by faith, be connected to God. So Paul tells us, folks, there's good news. We've been talking a lot about bad news. I mean, we've been talking about how this thing, you know, how, how we're different, how things have changed, and then we kind of get to the place where we say, well, man, you know, I just don't seem to be able to cut it. Just don't seem to be able to master it all the time. But then he says, listen, there's no condemnation in Christ. And then he says, the key to pleasing God is to set our minds on him. Look back in verses 5 through 8. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He uses this term, set our minds. It's we're making decisions. Listen, every day when we get up, we're making decisions day by day, moment by moment, that we will either feed our minds either in the flesh or in the spirit. Setting our minds on the flesh equals death, separation, broken fellowship with God, consequences of our sinful behavior, fear, depression, broken relationships, on and on and on and on it goes. Setting our minds on the flesh, folks, is a setup for failure in life. But setting our minds on the spirit equals life and peace. It's communion with God. 
See, there's nothing anybody can take from us. Those of us who know Christ, you can't take anything from us, including my very life. Because if you take this physical body, I still live. Fleshly minds are hostile to God. They are choosing to act as enemies towards him. They're thumbing their nose at him. Now, now let's pay attention, folks. Remember who he's talking to. He's not saying that people who are far from God, people who still haven't crossed the line of faith, those people are thumbing their nose at God. No. He's saying some of you, some of you who have fleshly minds are hostile to God. You're choosing to act as enemies towards him. People that are lost, people that are not yet saved, all those terms that we use that have not crossed the line of faith and given their life to Christ, those people are not the enemies of God. You know who are the enemies of God? Christians who have crossed the line of faith and then thumb their nose at God and say, I'll let you save me, but I'm still going to live my life the way I want to. He says they cannot please God because their mind is set. Set. It's decided on things that drive them away from God, that hurt their relationship with God. Conversely, though, the spiritual mind is life and peace. Who doesn't need peace in their lives in this chaotic world? He says it's fellowshipping with God and bringing God pleasure. We sometimes put too much emphasis on controlling our behaviors and not enough uh, emphasis on controlling our minds and our hearts. There's actually a process to sinfulness, and I'm not sure that we always re, you know, remind ourselves of this. And the mind of a believer not set on godly things, and here it is in James. Now, some people think that Paul and James uh, contradicted one another, and when you really study the scriptures out, uh, they didn't. They kind of came at a subject from uh, two different sides of the same coin. But James talks about this very process of sin and death. It's kind of a mathematical theology process in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Look what James says. He says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what does that mathematical process look like? Well, here's kind of a picture of it. I'm a picture guy. This helps me. See, somehow temptation comes into our life through either the world or our own flesh or Satan. We get tempted by something. But almost never, very, very rarely, do we a knee-jerk reaction to immediately sitting in our behavior. There's a process that we go through. See, we begin to think about it. We have a desire to do it, either what the world says or what the flesh says or what Satan says. We have a desire to do it. We think about it. We plan a hatch a scheme and then we behave that way. We actually commit the sin. And then, of course, the outcome of that, the consequence and the result of that, is death, separation from God. What Paul's saying here, folks, is, listen, maybe we concentrate too much on the behavior alone. We need to concentrate more on the mind and what we put in our mind, what controls our desires. The battle for the mind is critical, folks. Back when computers were just first invented by Al Gore, uh, we, there was a saying for all my computer programming friends, it was really cool back then to be a computer programmer, you know, and they'd say, trash in, trash out. And what they meant by that was if you, if you are creating a computer uh, file or program or whatever, and you do it with a bunch of junk in it that's not right, guess what you're going to get out of it? A bunch of junk that isn't right. And listen, our, our minds are a little bit the same. 
What you put in a recipe has a profound effect on how it turns out. When I was a bachelor, I uh, decided that I was going to bake a cake for a girl that I was uh, going on a date with. And uh, I was very uh, uh, methodical about how I did that. Now, uh, I don't want to say too much, but my wife does tell me that there are a few things that I'm not very manly about. I'm manly about a lot of things, but there's a few things I'm not too manly about. Like, for one of them is I follow directions. Sorry, guys. Uh, So when I buy a piece of furniture that you have to put together, I lay it out on the floor, I make sure I have all the parts, I read the instructions, and then I go back and I do them step by step, and it always turns out perfect. I'm not like some of you guys who come up with like 12 parts left over and don't know what to do with them. Okay? So I read the instructions. I was reading the instructions, the recipe for this cake, and I was just being meticulous. I was making sure that I measured everything absolutely perfectly. I mean, this thing was going to be, I was really going to impress this girl. By the way, it wasn't Julie. Okay? I was going to impress this girl. I made one error. I confused salt for sugar. Exactly. See, it matters what you put into something. It matters because it affects how it turns out. Now, I also made the mistake of not tasting it before I gave her a piece, and I don't think we ever went out again if my my memory serves me. But here's the point, folks. You can't put a bunch of junk in your mind and expect for your life to turn out well. Some of us are putting the wrong things in our minds, and we're expecting a delicious cake, and life just don't work that way. Fact, probably one of the most frustrating parts of ministry is when we see people uh, making choice after choice after choice after choice after choice that we know are destructive to their lives, they know are destructive to their lives, and then when their life is in utter and total chaos, they come to us as pastors and say, gee, pastor, what What happened? Well, you self-destructed. You made choice after choice that weren't good. You were focused on a fleshly mind rather than a spiritual mind. And it makes a difference. It makes a big difference. Think about the amount of time that you spend a week. Let's take this last week, for instance, last seven days. How much time, collectively, have you spent putting stuff into your mind that's either negative or it's just stuff it's just junk and how much time have you spent reading God's word having spiritual discussions with people sharing your testimony praying spending time putting good stuff godly stuff in your mind that's going to produce godly thoughts and godly behavior I would say for most of us by the way we live in a very chaotic uh, culture we put a lot of stuff in our minds over the course of a week And I would say for most of us, uh, we might spend a little bit of time on the spiritual stuff, but there's probably way more time spent on stuff that either doesn't matter or maybe we shouldn't be looking at at all. Folks, we can't overcome our sin when we feed the fleshly part of our mind. We can't uh, expect to have a different outcome than how we program something. It just doesn't work that way. So how do, we, how do we do this? How do we get the power? So if the key is to pleasing God is, is to set our minds on Him, how do I get the power to do that all the time? How do I get the power to really accomplish that? Well, let's look in verses 9 through 11. Because Paul says the power to overcoming sin is the Spirit of Christ in every believer. Here's what he says. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit, folks, is confirmation that we are born again, that we have been birthed into God's family. By the way, whenever you hear somebody say, oh, we're all God's children, I just want you to lovingly correct them. No, we aren't. We are all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. Only those who have been born again into God's family are God's children. Now, I can, when it comes to my parents, I can, I can discourage them, I can frustrate them, I can anger them, I can disappoint them, but I can't do anything that will take their name off my birth certificate. They've tried. I'm kidding. And folks, it's the same way when you're birthed into God's family. I might disappoint him, I might frustrate him, I might even anger him at times, but I can't be unborn spiritually. Once we're born into God's family, folks, we are there for all of eternity. And Paul says that the Spirit is confirmation of that. Even the struggle that Paul talked about in the last chapter is evidence of being spiritual. Think about it. Those apart from Christ, they don't experience this deep conflict of their minds and bodies warring with one another. Their minds, bodies, and souls are in concert doing exactly what they want to do. They don't, they don't have this inner turmoil that goes on. When Paul says anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, he's talking here about ownership. Who owns you? Those of us who know Christ have been bought. We have been, we have been purchased with a great price. We have been purchased with the body and the blood of Jesus. But if the Spirit of Christ is in us, we have the power for our spirits to master our bodies to a great extent. Maybe not perfectly, but to a great extent we do. He also reminds us that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it's pretty powerful, is the same Spirit we need to cling to and lean on or to overcome our sinfulness. See, it's not a power problem, folks. It's a focus problem. It's a desire problem. It's a thought problem. It's a mind problem. You know, most of you have seen uh, movies somewhere where they portray someone who's possessed by a demonic force or a demon. And this person, they, they, they can't control what they say, what they do, how their body reacts. They just are under the control of this evil spirit, right? We don't get the fact that if we will just yield to God... Because we are possessed by him, because his spirit lives in us, if we will yield to him, he will tell us what to say. He will help us how to behave. He will take over, in a sense, our body, our language, our relationships, how we interact, how we re respond to people. You know, I get tired. I, oh, God's leading me here. Uh, I just get tired of Christians saying to me, listen, man, I, I, just, I just can't be nice to my wife because she is a nag. I just can't, I can't be nice. I just can't quit losing my cool. I can't, 
control my temper because she keeps pushing my buttons. Is she in you or is Christ in you? Folks, we've got to quit making excuses for our bad behavior. Let's just be honest. I'm yielding to what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. The fact is, at any given moment, we can yield to God if we are believers in Christ, we can yield to the spirit that is in us, and he will control our behavior. He will control our, 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 our words. He will control our relationships. He will control our responses. Fact is, no matter how much your wife may nag or push your buttons, or no matter how much your husband may yell at you or scream at you or whatever, you can still be controlled by God's spirit. Don't turn that control to somebody else. Let God control you. Because that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, we have the power with God's help in us to do right in every circumstance. Why? He's told us who. Now he's told us how. Why is it? Here's why. Because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. So we should act like it. We should act like it. Look at Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says that we are debtors, but not to our sinfulness. Then who are we debtors to? Who are we debtors to? (laughs) The one who saved us from our sinfulness, that's who. We are debtors to Christ. We should always be thinking of ourselves as debtors. Listen, I am in debt to him. No matter, if God stopped blessing me today, never gave me another blessing as long as I lived, and I live another 30 years, I could still never repay him for his goodness to me. I could still never repay him for his faithfulness and his love and his mercy and his grace toward me. He's already outgiven me, and I could never catch up. I am in debt to him. We are in debt to him. By the way, Paul's not saying here that the way we live determines our eternal destination. He's saying the opposite. He's saying that our eternal destination should determine the way that we live. Listen, if you want to thumb your nose at God and you don't want, to, you don't want Christ in your life and you want to live your life the, whole, you know, the way you want to, uh, you go do that and you just you know, take, get what you get. Fact, I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes I respect lost people as a group more than I respect us as a group, Christians. Here's why. Almost every one of my lost friends is true to what they say they believe. They're honest. They tell me they're going to do these evil things and then they do them. But we, sometimes, we say we stand for one thing and then live a completely different life. 
leave a completely different way. Paul's saying, listen, if we've really been saved, if we are really in debt to God like this, we should live like we are. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Now let me tell you something about adoption in Paul's day. Uh, The adoption that he's talking about, uh, the legal adoption, is very different than our adoption. There are some, some ramifications of it. In fact, adopted children had greater privileges than birth children. Do you know that? An adopted child has a, had a guarantee of an equal share of the inheritance. Parents couldn't cut them out of the will if they were adopted. They could cut their birth children out of the will, but they couldn't cut, a, cut out their adopted children. They could also disown their birth children, but they couldn't disown their adopted children. They had a legal obligation to them. And so when he uses this term uh, uh, being adopted into God's family, folks, he's saying, listen, we've got, a, we've got a really special place. When we think about everything that God has done for us and given us this chance to be his children and receive every spiritual blessing that he offers, man, we should feel incredibly indebted. In fact, he's saying that God wants a relationship with us that's so sweet, so special. He's saying that we should be so familiar with God that we call him Abba, Father. It's not a singing group from the 70s. He's saying, listen, you should be able to say, you should be able to call him Daddy. Now, don't get weird on me. I can remember in college, met some guys, and we were reading the Bible, and we prayed one day, and, and the guy started praying. He said, Daddy? And he started praying. It kind of freaked me out a little bit. I didn't know what he was talking for, his dead father, or what he was doing there. Um, it was kind of weird. But what he's saying is, we should have the familiarity with God. We should have a relationship with him that we can say, Hey, Dad, I need your help. Dad, I can't seem to master this. Can you help me? I know a little bit about dads. And dads are always, good dads are always there ready to help their children. He's saying we should have that kind of relationship with God because of what Jesus has done in us. We are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. He is our brother. We have these great blessings from God. Here's the bottom line, folks. If we have been born into the family of God by receiving Christ as our Savior, and we've received the Holy Spirit, who lives in us, we have the ability and the capacity to feed our minds with God's word and God's goodness. And then we absolutely should live like it. We should live like it. It should make a difference in how we live. While we may still be in in the flesh and we may still occasionally sin, it should not reign or rule in our lives. It should not characterize us but be the exception rather than the rule. If you uh, called my neighbors, called my family members, my extended family members, if you called the people that I used to work with before I started working for the church full-time, and you asked them, what kind of of man is Michael really? I mean, he's not doing the churchy thing on Sunday morning. 
what kind of person is he really? If they characterize my life by saying, oh, you know, he, he, always, had the, he always had the funniest and dirtiest joke. Oh, yeah, he, he curses like a sailor when he's not there at church. Oh, yeah, I've seen him treat his wife in ways that you wouldn't, you know, treat your dog. If those were the things that people said about me, if those were the things that characterized my life, you'd have to wonder. You'd have to wonder, is the Spirit of God really in him? But if they would say, well, it's not really much different. I mean, he kind of acts the same way. We see him, how he treats his wife. He treats her really good, treats his kids really well. Whatever they would say, you know, he doesn't curse like a sailor. He doesn't say things he knows he shouldn't. And if it does slip out, he apologizes. If he says something that people take the wrong way or whatever. Folks, we're not going to master perfection. But if we call ourselves Christians, little Christs, then we should, with God's help, act like it. That should characterize who we are. And Paul's saying, folks, you don't have to just be a wretched man because God is here to help you with his power if you'll just feed your mind on godly things. We have been declared righteous by Christ's sacrifice and God's mercy and grace. We should be a reflection of that reality, not just take it by name only. We should be real, real Christians who act like it and other people suspect us of being it before they know us and before they know we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that guides and leads us. Father, we thank you for uh, just your goodness toward us. Father, you have been so good to us, we could never outgive you, we could never pay you back. And we know that you don't expect it because it's not possible. But Father, help us feed our minds with spiritual things rather than fleshly things. Help us learn how to uh, thwart the sinful behavior by controlling our thoughts. Help us when we are tempted to quote your word, to lean on you, to say a prayer, to ask for your help. God, help us live righteous lives that bring honor and glory to you and not embarrassment and shame. Father, for those who are here who have not crossed that line of faith yet, who have not given their life to you, I pray that you would hear today how much you want to help them, how much you love them, how much you care for them, that you gave your son to die for them and to buy them with a great price. And Father, I pray that you would knock on the door of their heart, that you would just keep nagging them until they give in and give their lives to you. Father, for those of us who've already given our lives to you, help us to leave here more determined than ever to fill our minds with the good things that you offer that will help us to live lives that bring you honor and glory and just make you famous in the world. God, we, we desire that. We don't want to make ourselves famous. We want to make you famous in the world because you're the only one worthy of fame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.